In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the one and only Kevin Holt. He's a bit of a world traveler. He's an author. He's got some fascinating stories that we're going to talk about. One of them might even be about becoming a fake priest. I'm not quite sure what's <laughs> happening here. But uh, Kevin Holt, thank you very much for taking some time to spend with me today. Why don't you introduce yourself? Thank you for that uh, stellar introduction. Um, <laughs> introductions are always tricky because i'm not really sure what resonates most with whoever's listening to but and what level i should talk about the who i am question True. but um most people want to know where you're from and all that so um i go with nationality i'm a swiss national but uh have an american root system as well my mom's american dad was swiss and i've lived most of my life outside of the u.s i lived in the u.s from the age of like four to twenty and then I've spent my adult life living in Spain, Japan, Taiwan, Switzerland for about 10 years. And I now live in Bali. So I've been, um, I like the term vagabonder. I'm somewhat like of a that. vagabonder. Um, like took that from the book by Ralph Potts, Vagabonding. It's excellent. Mm. So yeah, I've been sort of, uh, I'm someone who moves around a lot, nomadic creature, but slow travel. So I'll pick a place and uh, I kind of stay there for probably way longer than I should but that's that's how I travel so people look at me like oh you're so well traveled and I go well actually I'm not that well traveled compared to a lot of people I know that have visited 100 countries or whatever but yeah that's a little bit about me yeah it's yeah. it's such a great education it seems to me that I know when I have traveled I have not only found out a lot about the country that I'm traveling to but I think I have more found about how ignorant I am or how how the, the place where I'm from is different. It's weird how traveling can do that for you and almost be a great education. You must have had a fascinating upbringing traveling around so much. It's a interesting thing that I like to 
I discuss in my book a little bit the idea of how to change perspective. And I wouldn't, I mean, you can use the term ignorance if you want to, but it's just when you're in something, it's really hard to get a perspective on it until you exit it and you, you have a bird's eye view and you look at it from afar. And uh, that's been the case for me because I did most of my schooling in the U.S. system, although I was in, back and forth to, uh, to Switzerland. So I have some multicultural exposure. But it wasn't until I really left and got that bird's eye view that I got to see some of the things that I both appreciated about uh, my host culture, my home culture, rather, and some of the things I became critical about. And uh, I think that's really the main thing that travel did for me. Um, but I think it applies to any any situation, whether it's a family life or, or a career or whatever. It's just hard to to see it for what it is from inside. Um, yeah. And I, there's another guy I talked to quite a lot about this, and he raised an interesting point in that how do you know the culture that you're born and raised in is the one that's for you? Because he's gone elsewhere and he's found that he's treated much better by the people in the new places he's gone to. And he resonates much more with the way that they think. So yeah, for me, I just felt like I've taken bits and pieces from all these different places. And uh, so I'm kind of homeless in a way, I suppose. Home every, home at home everywhere and, and nowhere. Yeah. It reminds me of the old joke where there's these two young fish and they're swimming in the water and they're just going through their day. And then this older fish swims by them and he's like, Hey boys, how's the water? And the older fish are like, or the younger fish are like, what's water? Like you don't know you're in it until you were exposed to, to it. Like you don't know your own host cultures a certain way until you, like you said, you leave it. And all of a sudden you go, Oh, that, that's different. You know, it's, it's, it's different over there. Yeah. Do you think How about that, your, I'm sorry. Go ahead, sorry. You, you first. Um, do you think that maybe this traveling and seeing the world from a different point of view from having relationships from different perspectives was part of what inspired you to write the book? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's part of the, my story. Mm. I never really set out to write a travel book though. <laughs> so I, I mean, I do talk about some of my travel stuff in the, in the book as to use an example of something else. But yeah, I'd say that it definitely contributed to a lot of the ideas that I've accumulated over the years. And um, the one thing I will say about it though, is I don't know, it's, it, you can become lost. Um, some people really need that sense of, of identity to wherever they're living in their, their home culture. And that's so sometimes people like to glorify the whole travel thing and I love it, but I just want to give anybody listening, you know, a little grain of salt with it. Like you can, if you're too, I'm, I'm pretty open. And so sometimes I might be too open to new ways of thinking and culture. And then you kind of, you sort of like lose to some extent what, what your core is. And I'm okay with that, but I think it can be disorienting for, for many people. Um, yeah, so that sort of leads into the whole identity topic, which is something I like to write about and think about a lot. So the travel in that sense has impacted my ideas regarding that. Yeah, and just for everybody listening, the book is called Young, Successful, and Miserable, and it's by Kevin Holt here. It's a fantastic read. I've, I've, read, I've read through it from front to back, but I've gone back and looked at certain sections that I felt kind of called to me and even spoke to other people about it. And again, for those listening and watching, the book is 
in my opinion, it's really well done, Kevin. I, I'm thankful that you wrote it, and I'm thankful that I'm talking to you. It's not only a book that you can read from front to back, but it's one of the books where you can just kind of find a chapter that like, oh, look at this, and you can dig right into it. And not only can you read it, but you can interact with it in that there's sections for you to almost do like a workout in, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Is that when you when you decided to write the book, did you know that you wanted the book to be interactive like that? Or is that something maybe you do with your journaling or is that just some way you look at life or how did that come about? That's a great question. And thank you for your comments about the book as well. Um, I'm glad you enjoy it. I want to get back after this question. I want okay. to ask you what what okay. resonated with you and like what you know, some of your takeaways were. But you know how when people say that sort of the muse takes over? I do. Um, and I don't want to put myself in a category of some like brilliant writer because I'm not right. I've written one book that turned out pretty OK and I, I like it. But I don't think I actually set out to do anything with it. And it just sort of almost almost like I vomited something up <laughs> in, in a very short period of time. That was just it was just an accumulation of honestly a lot of anger at mm. some of the um, structures I found myself in, the yeah. extent to, to which I accepted it when I shouldn't have. And also just a lot of things that I've learned from myself and things I've learned from others. Like I had a lot of teachers yep. and it just sort of came out all like that. And um, I had done courses like that where you do some self-work. And I think just in the writing of it, I thought, oh, it'd be cool if actually I put something here where people could maybe write it out and and go deeper into it because that's i mean in my opinion the best way to, to do deep dives is just to write it out by hand and uh, a lot of self-help books that i've read in the past they don't necessarily provide that to you that just you're just listening to the author's words and that's great but if you actually have the the time to stop and, and write something out for yourself it can be more impactful so um i want to ask what you like what resonated uh with you when reading it well the the part that really I was I was reading the first couple of chapters and then the part that really made me stop and put the book down for a minute and go, man, I'm just like this guy or I, I've been through this was the part that you began talking about how you had been at a company for a while and you realized the the company architecture. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the framework for leadership inside the building. You talked mm -hmm. about how it kind of seems maybe the opposite of how it should be. And then you did a little deeper dive on digitization and how digitization has gone and stripped service. It's stripped the idea of, of making something great for the illusion of something better. And that kind of hit home with me. And I was like, you know what? There's all these people living this illusion. And I, the way I did it, I looked at my work where I work at, and I work at a multinational corporation and over the last, say, 15 to 20 years, I've noticed that the level of leadership has gone from people thoroughly understanding the job and wanting to provide a great service and a great product to someone who's willing to maybe undercut the foundation to give the illusion of productivity. And mm -hmm. I mean, I could kind of hear the anger in your voice a little bit. Like, you're like, this is not how it's supposed to be. There's all these people that are you know, working 12 hours, but they're not really working. And they get mad at me because I can come in and do it in five. Yeah. And so that to me was the first part of the book that really resonated with me. There's more, I have more as well, but can you talk a little bit about what it was that maybe 
inspired you to write that or lack of inspiration that inspired you to write that? Um, I suppose there's a few things. One was just the feeling of lack of agency in a lot of my career decisions. Mm. And that would depend on whoever's your manager at the end of the day. Like sometimes I was, I think at that when I wrote that book, I just quit a job where I had a very bad manager who didn't know anything about delegating and how to have mm. people give people autonomy over their work. So that was from a situation of not having as much autonomy as I wanted. And also you mentioned the illusions and it was, I'm very much, I believe in merit, you know, like doing yeah. a good job, showing up and being honest. And it just seemed like too many of the incentive structures were based mm. on pretending. Yeah. Like you said, the illusion or the illusion of we're doing something great or we're making progress. <laughs> right. Yep. But actually you're just going in the same circle yep. slightly differently every yep. year and telling yourself that it's something new. <laughs> and it's so true. <clears throat> and uh, I think I wrote in the book, even I was trying to be a good guy at one point yeah. where I was, I was going to leave and I, I gave him like way more notice than they needed. I think in Switzerland it was one month notice at the time at that job. And I gave him like six months notice because I already knew early on, this is not for me, I'm leaving. But they penalized me for that. They're like, oh, well, you gave your notice before uh, the bonus gets paid out, so you're not getting a bonus. Mm. So I'm like, all right, well, it would have been smarter for me if I just kept my mouth shut, screwed right. you guys over, took my payout and left, and left you holding the bag with no time to replace me. So that's just one example where I feel like the incentives are, are perverse in a lot, of, uh, a lot of those situations. I've had some really good situations. I don't want to sure. come off like I had this horrible work experience i've had some great great ones and the last time i left was the hardest because i had the best experience and the team was amazing and i, I loved everybody there and we were friends but i couldn't solve the whole hamster wheel thing of illusion of progress when none was really being happening you know yeah yeah, yeah i know exactly what you mean it 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 seems to me and it kind of saddens me when you're when you're with a company when you're with a structure and you have adopted the people there as colleagues if not friends and family that you really care about because you see them every day and you want them to be successful and you want them to be well yeah. but then you, you you see these rules coming in that are like hey I, i've had a can i share a quick story with you Would that be yeah, okay of course so i remember being at being at work and, and there was these problems with production and so i took the my idea to the 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 center manager at the time and i was like you know i see what we're trying to do here but it seems to me we'd be much better off if maybe we streamlined and and we re-looped all these different routes i work for a trucking company and they yeah. wanted the actual driver to come in and go okay well we just want more production so we want each driver to do you know roughly about an extra hour every day and so my idea was like, okay, I get it. Like I have stock in the company. Let's all be more productive. But wouldn't it be more productive if we re-looped the routes and we changed all the routes because they haven't been looped in like 20 years. We could mm -hmm. shave off time. It'd be more productive for everybody. And you could get a streamlined product, better service and everything. And the guy just looked at me and he's like, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, okay, no problem. I know how I can help you. And he's like, no, that, that would take too much time. <laughs> and I was like, okay, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, so you just want these guys to do it, but you as the leader, you you don't want to do it. Like you don't want to hold yourself to the very same standard that you're trying to get other people to hold to. And he's like, you know, what? I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, and it's that's just one example that 
upsets me because I care about the place I work. I care about the leaders and the, the employees. And I think that if everybody is willing to hold themselves to a higher standard, that everybody is going to be better off because of it. So mm -hmm. that was my story about that. Thanks for letting me share that. Yeah, it's, it's another example of this thing of, of, like you say, illusion. It's almost like honesty is penalized yes. a lot of the time. And I remember there were very many situations where I'm speaking out. The most recent one, I was like almost yelling at people. I was like, guys, this, what we've invested a ton of money in this technology. I get it. And you've sold the world like it's the best thing ever. I get it. But it's not going to work. And I was the one that was mm. closest to it. I was like trying to integrate these two tools for like two years. And I'm like, this is never going to work. There's fundamental flaws in the software. You can't get it done. And but no, no one wanted to hear it. So I like I would tell my boss and then he there's still this hierarchy. Right. I mean, there's right. a kind of open, open culture there, but there's yeah. still important messages often get filtered through a channel from down to up. Yeah. And whatever the guy in the bottom says isn't necessarily what the person at the top <laughs> hears. Right. Because everyone in the middle is playing this sort of yes man game unless you have really good leaders, which are rare. So then. I was saying this stuff for years. And then when I resigned to the big boss, who was my old boss, he acts like he's hearing it from the first time. And I'm like, I've been telling everyone around me, like I've been shaking people, like <laughs> we got to do something. This is not going to work. And then, you know, so lack of communication is another thing. Yeah. And when you, when you see good leadership, it's really nice because there's so much bad leadership and, you know, I have had some fortune. I have really good leaders. And so I, I do appreciate it when I see it, but it's pretty rare, actually, the, the really open, honest uh, communicators out there. Yeah. You know, I had this idea. Let me know what you think about this. When you said that you guys were creating this technology and it came to your understanding that it didn't work, I, I, I kind of think that that is exactly what's been happening in our world for the last 20 years. It seems to me that, you know, boards of directors, CEOs, people at the top, have been sold this bill of good of technology. Like, okay, this is going to make everything more productive. We're going to have these self-driving trucks. We're going to have this new technology that's way better and it's going to alleviate, you know, workforce. It's going to, it's going to create tenfold production. But it seems to me that a lot of the technology that's been sold as a method of solving problems hasn't come to fruition. And now we're seeing these problems play out because people try to implement it and it doesn't work, but they've already bought it. They're already committed to it. And so they're rolling it out anyway. And yeah. it seems to me that in doing so, we've lost the very knowledge that has got us to where we are. We've lost the people in leadership that started at the bottom and worked their way up. And it, I'm just curious if, if you see that as maybe an isolated couple incidents, or do you think that that could be the thin red thread that's woven its way through the world in which we live today? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great observation. And I think that that's probably, I can't speak for everyone else that right. had, you know, I was working in jobs like this because I've only been in one particular industry, but I've seen that exact dynamic play out across the industry, which is why I kind of, left the industry because i'm like well this is happening at my job i know what's happening at these other companies so where am i going to go because it's all the same um and i'll take even a, a step further i think nice. that that problem you mentioned is probably a huge reason for why people are resigning in droves or they're miserable at work mm. now more than ever because mm. what was sold is something that's supposed to enhance 
productivity and create growth. Actually, for most of the people at, well, I was like middle management and below, but like at those level of jobs, it just, it makes it into more drudgery because it takes away your creativity. So, I mean, to use an example from my work, I used to do a lot in Excel and I quite like Excel because I'm a logically oriented person and I can think of little formulas to optimize my work and view data the way I want. And then there are problems with that, though, of course, with with doing everything in Excel. So then they bring in software as a solution. Problem is now you got to do it that way. You can only do it the (laughs) way the software allows you to do it. So you have way less autonomy over how you control your work. And then what kept happening to me is it took me twice as long to get the job done because something I could just do in Excel, I had to do this roundabout way in in the software and uh, it just ended up being more boring and took longer. And then of course you're evaluated on, you know, your productivity and what they gave me made my productivity go down. So (laughs) I don't know for me, it was okay, but a lot of people struggled, Uh, you know, they worked longer and they were just more miserable. And so, yeah, it just hasn't really, the, the what they've sold it as hasn't really come to fruition as as you said so i think that's yeah i, I, do, I do think i mentioned i forget the exact quote i'm using the book but i think it's pretty funny like some drudgery soul eating drudgery or something with each yeah. wave of digitization <laughs> yeah that's the part that like that was the first part that reached through the pages like listen to this yeah. <laughs> i was like oh i love this guy man that's exactly what i was thinking <laughs> And of course, like you said, they've already invested millions, right? And yes. then no one's going to listen to me because it's a message they don't want to hear. So as long as there's someone higher than me that's saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing great, boss. They're like, okay, we can yep. forget about that and continue. You know, yeah. and they know people are going to come and go anyway. So they kind of don't care to some extent. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, it seems to me that that's when you begin to see a lot of creative accounting happening. Oh, yeah, this is totally productive. Hang on, let me just switch oh, absolutely. this eight to a zero you know, and, and then, and then everybody loses. I, or they defer so, the cost to another quarter or I don't know, yep, I don't know what they're doing yep, with it. <laughs> yeah. It's. And then it's of course the willingness to like, oh, actually go, Oh crap. Like it's not going to work. Let's scrap this investment and start over and invest another few million. That's uh, not, not popular in leadership to, to report losses or lack of profit, you know? Yeah. No one ever wants to admit they're wrong, but the truth is, if you don't admit something's wrong, it never gets better, right? right? Like you have to be willing to be like, okay, I made a mistake. But if you do that, you're probably gonna get fired. So what are you gonna do? You're you're just gonna extend and pretend until until you, you know, make pretend yeah. it works. I guess. And me, they kept promoting me, so I'm like, what? I mean, I'm I'm talking shit all the time. Yeah. And you're still <laughs> letting me get away with it. Like, so you're not listening to me, but you're not getting rid of me. Like, what is the situation? And then yeah. they kept trying to put me on stuff that's like, oh yeah, we can put Kevin on it. He'll fix it. And then after right. a while I realized it's not fixable. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's when, yeah. They, when you seem to me like a person who genuinely cares and wants to help people. And I'm stoked that there's people like you in, there's probably people, hopefully there's more people like you in buildings and in companies and in boardrooms around the world. Cause we definitely need it. I wanted to ask you, do you like, you have some interesting stories almost the trifecta of death that came your way like you've been you've had these crazy experiences near-death experiences that i thought were you know hopefully everybody has at least one in their life where they come to this road to damascus moment and it seems like you've had three of them can you share maybe one or two or three of them about what happened and what how do you think it changed you 
Well, I'll yeah, I think the second one is is good to share because there's okay. sort of a background to it. Okay. Um so yeah, I've had three as you mentioned. I had a near drowning thing. And then the one I want to talk about is the heart attack the year after. Mm. So yeah, that happened when I was 19. And what was interesting about that, there's a backstory, which I don't think I wrote about, but I was at a crossroads and basically one route was traveling and one route was going to this business school where I was. And I don't want to get into more details, but basically they were incompatible. So I was doing summer session because I was taking summer courses and it was like a week before the last exam I had to take. And if I aced that exam, it would have got me into the business school, at which point I would be confronted with that choice. Okay, do I do that or do I do this? A couple of days before, out of nowhere, I have a heart attack. It's like 10 in the morning. I'm eating cereal and like I'm by myself in the apartment that I was sharing. And I have all the telltale things that, you know, I had the numbness in the arms, right. it was in both arms. And I was like, man, this is, this is weird, but it can't like, it can't be a heart attack. Like that's insane. Mm -hmm. Cause I was in super, I was in awesome shape. I was playing competitive racquetball for the school. You know, I was in the gym every day. I was playing two or three hours a day. I was swimming. I was lifting weights. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I was like, no, nah, that can't be. So I, I laid down for a while and then I started getting this, this arrhythmia and I could like palpably Ooh. hear it. And then, um, I was like, well, I feel like an idiot, but I'm going to have to go to the hospital. So I drove myself to the nearby university hospital, which is about 10 minutes away. By the way, terrible idea. <laughs> Anybody listening, don't do it. I was too embarrassed to call 911. That's a stupid reason to drive yourself to a hospital while you're having a heart attack because you can lose consciousness and die. All right. right. Luckily, I did not. So I got to the parking lot, checked myself in, and I went to the lady there and I said, um, hey, I think I'm having a heart attack. And then she said, well, are you doing exams right now? And I said, well, yeah, I actually have an exam in a couple of days. She's like, oh, okay, well, I'll go talk to the charge nurse then, and she'll check you in. So then I go talk to the nurse. And then, of course, if you've ever been to a hospital in the U.S. or any kind of clinic, they check you in. They ask you to rate your pain on this infamous scale of, of 1 to 10 or whatever it is. So I don't know if I deluded myself in hearing this or misheard or whatever, but she said, please rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, one being no pain, 10 being the worst pain you can imagine. So I don't know if she exactly said the worst pain you ever felt or the worst pain you can imagine, but I heard worst pain you can imagine. And I've got a very vivid imagination. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what the 10 is like being burned alive or there's medieval torture flaying, flaying the skin off me or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if that's a 10, this is like a five, right? <laughs> right? I mean, it hurts, but it's not anything compared to that. <laughs> so I mark five. I'm like, okay, go in the waiting room. So I go in the waiting room and like 10 minutes go by, 20 minutes, 25, 30. No one's coming to get me. And I'm like like pale. I'm shaking. And I'm like almost almost losing consciousness. I can barely keep my, my, my eyes open. So then I managed to drag myself back over uh, – to the desk again i was like i know you this so it's been like an hour and a half now since i've had wow these heart attack symptoms or close to that and i finally get myself you know i'm like look i know you think i'm stupid but i really think i'm gonna have a heart attack and they're like oh yeah they were just looking for you and whatever so they they bring me into this hallway so a makeshift bed and they once again give me anti-anxiety medicine because they're still operating under the assumption that i'm worried about my exams 
right? So that does nothing, right? So there's another 20, <laughs> 30 minutes where like, I'm just sitting there like, oh, like just like being constricted, like just there's a vice around my chest, can't yeah. breathe very well, you know, and all this pain and stuff. And they finally do the, the scan and, you know, I come back from the scan. They're like, hey, we think you had a heart attack. I was like, yeah, I know. I've been telling you that for you know, almost an hour and a half. And, was right. like, and then they gave me the thing that uh, it's like nitroglycerin mm. that they put under, you put under the tongue and that just opens your arteries. And then it kind of went away, like the pain went away in literally five or 10 minutes. And then I was just like walking around as if nothing happened. Mm. Um, so. Oh yeah, they thought I smoked crack. That was their. They're like, "Did you smoke crack recently?" <laughs> like, no, no crystal meth, anything like that. I was like, "No." So uh, it's just I don't know. It's it's just this fluke thing that I suppose anyone can have. I mean, it's very low probability, but basically, an artery just randomly spasmed closed mm. and uh, cut off the blood flow to my heart. And I'm telling the story because it's entertaining. But the backstop of the story is that once I got out. Once I got recovered, this decision tree was like crystal clear. Mm. There was no doubt that, oh, it's like, no, it's a travel thing. I'm going traveling. Like I'd had no more interest in the business school thing. I ended up taking the test, getting in anyway, but I was like, I don't care. I've already decided. So it's an extreme example of, I think we have this a lot. Like a lot of people have this, uh, if you're aware to it, where if you have this sort of fork in the road of life, if you put the question out there, sometimes you get answers um, in, in ways you're not expecting. And I think that was kind of what this was. It was like the, the travel is the heart, uh, the heart path. And then the, the work is like the logical mind path. And it's like heart attack. Hey, pay attention to your heart. What do you really want to do? You know? And then I looked yeah. at it and I was like, oh yeah, that's pretty clear what I want to do. So then yeah. that's, then I'm going to Spain, um, uh, stayed there. I was supposed to go for a semester and up saying like over a year, I got a job there and like bartending, just like had the best time and had no desire before that to really go traveling. But this, this experience gave me that, that travel bug. And then after I, I was like another six months, I had to go back to graduate. And then I just left. I took off. I went to Japan after that. Um, stayed in Japan two years, Taiwan, five years. Uh, yeah. So that really opened up a whole chapter of life um i don't know if it's hard to say because it's most impactful when these things happen to you but even then they don't last very long mm -hmm. it's it's really only you know for a few years you have this this incredible gratitude for life and that you survived and that you can still breathe and stuff but i think after a few weeks you're kind of back to normal so um it really requires reinforcement you know just maybe every day do a little bit of that kind of death awareness that you could die anytime and just try to get at what you really want to do so that's my takeaway the other takeaways i've had from these experiences is just how like anything can change like literally at any time and what you think is you're so comfortable with and secure and that's yours and that you can hold on to it it could be gone anytime and I've had a lot of different episodes, not only these stories, but a couple other things that have happened where literally, boom, everything just sort of changes very, uh, in a very short time. And I, I think what it has done for me is allow me to allow me to sort of surf in the wave of, of uncertainty mm. more than I otherwise might have been able to. I think that's my main takeaway from all that. Yeah, that's an incredible <clears throat> lesson. Because the truth is, 
the only certainty we have is this false sense of security that we build around us. Like it, things can happen and they do happen a lot. And in some ways, as horrible as tragedy can be, it seems to me it can be looked at as a gift once you've gotten through the pain or you've gotten through the grieving process because it clears away all the detritus and it clears away the like the bullshit. You know, like you said, it, it was like mm -hmm. here you are struggling and like oh, I'm going to focus on getting in this school because it would mean all these other things and your heart's like, nah, man. Yeah, heart's, nah. Like your heart was literally not in it. You know what I mean? Exactly. Your heart wasn't in it. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm thank you. First off, thanks for sharing that story, and thank you for putting it in the book because that's that's what I got out of it was, yes, these things that we feel are tragic, are usually events in our life where we're at a crossroad where we've been thinking about something and our body's not in tune with our language or our brain and our body, that mind body connection is severed and you know the the world will grab you by the hand and pull you a certain way when hopefully when you're making bad decisions hopefully you listen to it like you could have chose not to listen to that but like i'm going to this business school anyway and you know you mm -hmm. it might have been two more heart attacks before you decided that maybe you were going down the wrong road there i did end up circling back to to the business world so i was like oh i can do maybe i can do it yeah. later you know and then i and went to can. business school much later and then right. got into that world yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's funny though. I wrote about the migraines. I started having those around the business school the second time. I'm like, hmm, no, I'm just now for the first time thinking about that. I was like, wow. Okay. Maybe, maybe they're like, nope, this still isn't right. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, how do we get through to you? <laughs> yeah. You're not listening. Stubborn <laughs> life child. Yeah. This is the yep. universe trying to tell you something. Yeah. yeah. Tap on his head a little bit. Hit him in the heart, get him in the head. Let's see what yeah. here. <laughs> what can we take from this guy? When is he going to finally get it? <laughs> he's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. He's a stubborn one. But on, on the flip side of that too, you learn that you can push through your comfort zone and get things done, you know, and, on some level, when you tell me that story, how you doubled back, it makes me think that the deal you struck with yourself, okay, I'll travel now, but then I'll come back. A lot of people would never follow through with that. So, mm. you know, depending on how you want to look at it, you know, I, I think you can look at it in a positive way. Like, yeah, I, I went and I traveled, I learned, and then I doubled back and was true to myself because I made a deal with myself to go back to it. And I kind of, uh, I found a way to double back without sacrificing the travel, which I think is difficult yes. to do, but I got lucky because I did, I did have gone to business school like the, at the master's level, but I did it in Taiwan. So I was oh. still like in Taiwan living there and I'm like, oh, I can get this education at the same time. And then I moved to Switzerland where I'd never like lived in as adult before and started my career there. So it was still like a new environment. So yeah, I was sort of managed to, to do it like that. So I was very lucky, I think. Yeah. Was responding you, to the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> how, how did you find, how have you found being educated in one country and then applying for a job in another country? Do you find that the country that you're applying for the job in tends to look at your credentials from another country on a positive note? Or do they look at it through maybe a little bit of a lowered brow? Well, I, I'm not sure, but I think I think Switzerland is a um, Europe versus U.S. is a bit tricky because mm. I find that in the U.S. people are much more open. They're much more open to 
you bringing an experience to a potential job that isn't necessarily what you studied for the last 10 years, <laughs> right? So right. They, they might give you a start in like sales if you've never done sales before. But in Europe, specifically in Switzerland, everybody's hyper-specialized. Mm. And it's another interesting like road we can go down about generalization versus specialization. Mm. But there, it was probably not an advantage because they had so many people where they had do, been doing that exact thing for so long, like in every industry. So it's, it's kind of hard to break into, quite honestly. Um, and it was also the, the trap of being overqualified for stuff or under, you know, under, under experienced, but overqualified, which is silly. Like you, there's a lot of job ads out there that for entry level work, they want you to have five years experience. So it's like, how does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. So I ran into that quite a bit. Um, and I'm somebody who was like, I don't need to start here. I mean, I, I'm new to this place. I just give me any job. I'll work a temp job. Yeah. But even temp agencies were like, Hey, you got a master's degree. This there's nothing here for you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. Like I need to eat. Right. I need an right. income. So it's is a little bit different mentality there. Yeah. I've noticed if, if we backtrack just a little bit, I've noticed that a lot of the new books coming out, well, a lot of the new books that I've been reading, even like, I think your book is this way. And I think a lot of the new exciting fields are interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And prior to the last few years, it was this incredible hyper specialization where people that are on the extremes, they're almost not even talking the same language. You know, yeah. it's so in depth. And so I know the left pinky finger fingernail but it's way different than the pointer fingernail <laughs> and so it's easy to see how we've gotten so separated from each other when in the same field there is you know what it reminds me of this it reminds me of the idea that there's more numbers between zero and one than there are between one and infinity if you think about really? that for a minute yeah because there's point zero one point zero zero one point zero 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 one right, and right, there's right smaller numbers you know what i mean yeah. And so that that seems to me to be like specialization. Like we can we can break it down so fine that you need a super special microscope. But at some point in time, you got to pan back and look at the big picture. And be like, okay, we've lost it here. Let's 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 get back to whole numbers here and, and figure this thing out. But what what was yeah. what what is your take on the special hyper specialization versus the big picture? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I was I was just thinking about this before we started talking today, actually. There's a there's a great word in German called oh, nice. called Fachidiot. Uh, the word Fach means specialization. Idiot means idiot. So <laughs> we have so many people who hyper specialize, but as you said, they only see this little you know yep. fingernail, and they lose lose a whole big picture. And you see that in I mean, you just look at the like COVID and vaccine debates. Yeah, you can't. Unless you have a PhD in this like one little tranche of medicine, yep. it's almost like your opinion is invalid. Yep. Like you're unable to draw inferences from other sources and tie it to what the, you've already known. And that's an interesting way of stifling debate on the one hand. Huge. On the other hand, we're not getting anywhere because we just have these people talking in their echo chambers and no one else is allowed to participate. And that ties into kind of what we were talking about before with, with the work culture. I think work was a lot more interesting when we were generalists because mm -hmm. you weren't necessarily just doing bookkeeping all day long every day. You might be doing a little bit of that, a little bit of uh, customer support, a little bit of you know, 
a lot more variety in your work. And I love those, sorry, there's a, there's a plane driving, they're flying overhead. But I like the stories from, if you read these books, like uh, Not Think and Grow Rich, but of that era, right. in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and you had this right. sense of, of anything was possible. And people yeah. would just walk up to Th- uh, Thomas Edison's company and say, hey, I'm Mr. Nobody. Uh, I want to work for your company, Mr. Edison. And he's like, okay, here you go, sir. I gave you a chance. <laughs> and it, it doesn't happen like that anymore so much. Yep. And there's so many barriers, artificial or otherwise, in the way of that. And it made, I think it made white collar work much more boring, much more like mm. a, an assembly line. If you think yeah. about you're so specialized, you're just doing this one tiny piece of the process. Um, and I've... I've always been the opposite way. And I always felt my whole life like I was society was telling me I was doing something wrong because I've always been super general and I have all these different interests from different areas, but they didn't translate so well into the career world. Right. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you so mean. So I don't really know the solution, but I think being more general is good. But then there's an the argument of, well, we spe- the more we specialize, the more uh, wealthy we become, right? Because mm-hmm. all, all the Western economies are around really specialized labor. So I don't know if there's a way to do that. Maybe we do need to lose some, you know, wealth or whatever to figure it out. But uh, I don't really know how, how we navigate that. I hope we can figure it out. I think it's going to happen. Like, I, I think it's happening now because when you are so specialized, you, you no longer have a difference of opinion. You only have the opinion that was taught to you by the guy who knew the person who was the perfect specialist. So everyone has the same blinders on. And that's why we can't solve problems. It's like, we're going to go to these professionals that all think exactly the same. Okay, well, you're going to get the exact same solution. Mm-hmm. And when you said that, you know, when, we, when you gave your example about Edison or even your life that you've lived as a generalist, that allows you to see the problem from a fresh set of eyes. Like it's, it's like if you ever have a problem and then you're like, I can't figure this out, but you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning, you can figure it out because you got this fresh idea on it. You can see it differently. But we need yeah. that same sort of problem-solving method from – from different angles of life. And, and that, that should be what diversity is. Diversity should be a difference of opinion. It shouldn't be, okay, we need a, this person, we need, a, we need this type of person, that type of person, but I want them to all think the same. It's back to the illusion of diversity. Just because people look different and have different right. genders doesn't mean they think different. And, and in fact, if we take all these different colored people and put them in the same institution, Okay, now you have a bunch of different looking people that all think the same. It's not, nothing's happening like that. You have to yeah. get people from different walks of life. And it just seems to be a natural filter process to filter that out. And I think it gets back to that people don't want to be wrong. So let's hire people that will do what we tell them and think the same. But we're running from the very thing that would free us, I think. Yeah, you see that a lot in, in the corporate world, too, because, yeah. uh, you know, to get a corporate job, usually you have to go to a four-year university. Yep. Or universities tend to be somewhat conformist in how they ex- want you to think about things. Yeah. So then you get into a group of you know peers already at that level, and then they all go to the same companies. And yeah, they could be from whatever background, any kind yeah. of ethnicity or race, but they they've learned to think and look at the world through the similar lenses. So you don't really have that much diversity anymore. And it's also the when we're talking about generalists. Who are the people that used to be idolized? You know, you think about uh, Da Vinci, 
you know, the Renaissance people, Da Vinci, yeah. look at all the things Da Vinci was good at. Yeah. He had like 15 different amazing abilities because he was so all over the place. Yeah. And uh, the, the founding fathers of the U.S., they were all like really diversely educated uh, people. Yep. And it's like that exposure to different ideas that ends up being the driver of a lot of like the best inventions and innovations, I think, rather than somebody who's just doing one thing and not looking at anything else. So we sort of lost, we lost creativity, I think, overall by going down this route. You know, there, there's a parallel I see between what we're talking about and like your book. And, and that is, let me try to set it up the way where if you think about a like an engine, like there's a bust and a boom, like a piston goes up and it goes down and it explodes and then it comes back, explodes and it comes back the same way the tide of the ocean goes out and then it comes in. It goes out and then it comes in. And the same way our economy has a boom bust cycle. We expand out and then we and then it collapses and it expands back out and it collapses. I think specialization is a form of expansion because it's like it goes way out. The same way you would take an ink bottle and smash it against the wall and then mm -hmm. all the ink would fall out and there'd be these little spirals and stuff, but it's still yeah. the same ink. The way I see your book written is like there's this premise and then you go and you've, you've traveled to Spain. You've expanded to Switzerland. You've expanded through different relationships. You've expanded through these near-death experiences and then you bring in it back. And so it, I'm, I'm often, lately I've been seeing this pattern in good books like yours and in life and in the world in which we live. I'm, I'm wondering, do you see patterns like that, not only in your life, and in your writing, but throughout the world you live. I do, but I want to ask you a question okay, about please. what you just said. When you're talking about the patterns of expanding and bringing it back, what do you think of the idea that our artificial delaying of the bringing it back over the last few decades due to Fed monetary policy, people pumping more stuff into the system, delaying exactly what you're talking about? Oh, it's futile. Like there's no way, like you can't, it's like, it's like the tide goes out and then I, I draw a line in the sand to try to catch the way the water. It's like, dude, it's not going to work. It's like a sandcastle yeah. and you could pretend and you can, you could pretend the emperor is wearing clothes, but there's nothing those people can do. Like there's going to be Other a radical. Yeah. 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 And, and the more you delay, the truth is, I don't know. I don't think it'll work, but. Maybe if you dug a deep enough hole, it would catch the water as it came back. But I don't think you can stop the cycles. You may be able to delay them, but are you really delaying it or are you just causing pain in different areas? Right. That's what I'm suggesting, right? Because we've been, it's been delayed for so long and then it's given rise to all these ills that we're talking about. Right. Like the overall specialization because we're not bringing it back. Yeah. They keep putting it off. I mean, yeah. eventually it will. I mean, probably in our lifetimes, maybe very soon. Who knows? Why do you think they're doing that? It's the same thing, like in the companies. It's it's also it's politically driven. Who wants to be responsible for the great pullback, right? <laughs> it, nobody. Yeah, nobody wants nobody to be like, does. oh, that happened on my watch. No way. I'm going to kick the can. Man, that guy's going to. It's like hot potato. Yep. And I just feel like they they're they keep playing hot potato so that they can extract whatever they need to in fast enough time. Then you hope the other person that comes in and does it, but they're playing the same game, right? So it just right. keeps going and going until, until it hits that critical mass where you can't do it anymore, which I don't think is that far off, to be honest. Yeah. Do you think that we're as guilt, like, 
you think we're as guilty as the people in positions of authority? Like, and by by we, I mean guys like me and you doing a podcast right now. They get up and do their thing. Are, are are we just as guilty as the people in positions of authority? Probably. I mean, uh, most people don't really want to do anything about it because it's uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I like my my comfortable life, and you know all the stuff at my fingertips and food delivered to my door or whatever. I don't want to go through periods of famine and, and unpleasantness, but it's going to require something like that. So uh, yeah, we just, we all put it off either physically or psychologically, I think. And we yeah. just, in our minds, we just feel like, we, I mean, how old are you, may I ask? Yeah, 47. Well, so maybe not the extent that I have, but I've pretty much only lived during good times. Right. If you think about, okay, there've been a couple of recessions, the dot com burst, and maybe the one two thousand eight, but we haven't had any any real pain, and we've just had the good life, uh, at least in the West, and we just have this expectation that's just going to keep going, and that we're never going to have to pay that reckoning. So, kick the can of the next generation. That's what people are kind of uh, doing. Yeah, I, I, the silver lining that I try to pull up over myself is that. In times of radical change, there's radical opportunity. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll become a multi-millionaire or a Robin Baron or, or one of these Carnegie individuals. But it does mean that you have an opportunity to ride that wave back in. And you can change who you are with greater intensity and flow if you go with it. And for me, like I've been a UPS driver for 25 years and I've, I've been lucky to travel around the world. I love reading and I've, I've found myself over the last, ever since COVID hit, like I've fundamentally, it's fundamentally changed me who I am. Like I've been able to, I always like helping people and I, I try to volunteer when I can and, and, and help people. But I've, when COVID hit, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start a channel. I'm going to do some podcasting. And that. Today I'm talking to you and I think you're an awesome person and my book is awesome. And I've spoken to other people who are really cool and I've gotten to learn so much more and I've created all these new relationships because of the great pullback, because of the recession, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And I've my wife and I's relationship has become better and she's gotten to work from home a little bit. And it's, it's, you know, fundamentally changed the way we spend money because we don't have a whole lot of money anymore. And, and so I think that to see the change and try to build a dam and not change is futile. But if you can kind of understand a little bit or at least see the direction things are moving, then you yourself can move with it and you can change and use it as a catalyst for that change. So I I think that there are some silver linings if you're willing to accept a little bit of pain and just know that pain is change and that we're always changing. So you should embrace this pain and embrace this change. Yeah. It sounds like you're talking about developing resilience and just yeah. kind of, at least mentally, uh, perhaps financially with ties or whatever, and just to be able to respond to what, what comes. What's the, what's the alternative, right? Yeah. Holding on, you know, going down <laughs> with the ship. <laughs> ah, Not that I subscribe wall. to that, but you know, I'm sure many people do. Well, I think I think you we've probably both done it before, and we know it doesn't work. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, when I was, oh man, in 2010, my son died, and for me, that was like, it took so long, 
you know, I held on to that ship for as long as I can because it meant death. And I didn't want to hold on. To, and I, I couldn't let go. I'll die if I let go. My family will die if I let go. I can't mm-hmm. let go. I'm, I'm the dad. I'm, I'm the husband. I can't not let go of this. And, I, you know, everything died. Relationships died. Part of me died. My relationship with my wife almost died. We lost, I, I lost my kid, like lost everything, man. Yeah. And as, as you finally let go, you begin to understand, you know, maybe there's a gift here. And I, that sounds so fucking crazy, but. No, it doesn't sound crazy at all. I fully agree with you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I learned like that's what that is when I learned the purpose of tragedy. The purpose of tragedy is because there's something bigger than we can understand. There's something bigger than we can comprehend. And the purpose of tragedy is that something, this bigger force believes you, it chose you. Hey, this is going to hurt really effing bad, but I'm going to take you through it. And when you come through the other side, I think you're strong enough to come out that other side and help people that it's going to happen to so I'm going to give you the sight to see it happening. I'm going to give you the sight to see the abuse before it happens. And then I'm also going to give you and entrust you with the privilege of helping those people get through that event because you can do it because I chose you to do this. And you start, I start thinking like, God damn, like somebody loved me and believed in me enough. Call it God or Gaia or Buddha or Mohammed, call it whatever you want, but there's this force that loved you so much it caused you the worst pain possible because it knew that would change you because it knew that you can go help other people. And that's when I I learned, okay, let go. I know you can't let go. And, and so now when I see other people that are white knuckling it, dude, I'm, I'm coming over to you. I see you. Hey, hey, what's going on? What's up with these white knuckles, man? What are you doing? Just let go. Mm. No, I can't let go, George. Like, yes, you can. Like, I, I think that that, is what allows you to change. Like you, part of you has to die so something can grow back. Part of you must die so that you can move forward. And it's very painful, but it's necessary. Yeah, totally. The the there's something in. I mean, I've never lost a child. I imagine that's pretty much the worst experience possible. But I've gone through other things where I think it just teaches you that you just have to surrender. I mean, you, sometimes you just feel like completely helpless in yeah. the in the in the face of the, the whatever this mystery is like it can give it can take away whatever yeah. you can lose everything at any time and i have like been to that point too where i'm just like fuck like <laughs> like not i give up that's a little different right right right, but right. like kind of you know kind of like yeah all right you know surrender is such just, a great word s- surrender to it and whatever happens happens and you do learn to be thankful for it because yeah. you do go through that death and rebirth. And on the other side of it, I'm sure you experienced as well. But um, when I went through, I went through like a depression maybe yeah. about two or three years ago, mm-hmm. like after my wife left me and then some other stuff happened. And I'd never even come close to feeling depressed before. And this thing just like caught me and I got wrapped yeah. up in it. But when I came out at the other side of it, I was like, I felt like a whole new person. I just felt like, this sort of indestructibility inside having gone through it and okay, that didn't kill me. Like I survived this. Yeah. I'm good. You know? And then you sort of, uh, for me, it was a natural kind of uh, let go even more after that. Cause it sort of taught me, well, I, maybe I, 
don't have, maybe I don't have anything, but as long as I've got what's in here, you know, as long as I got my health, then you can't, you know, I can't take anything else away. That's the way yeah. I felt anyway. No, that's, that's, it's brilliant. And what, once something like that happens to you, you can see the lessons that are trying to be taught by antiquity. Like if you read a lot of the old scriptures, like you look at Abraham, like sacrificing his son. If you look at like the Aztec culture, there's all this talk of sacrifice. And what, what if those are metaphors for like, you know, you must sacrifice everything. And when you do, you can learn something new. Like for me, going through these incredibly painful loss, be it a wife, a child, a job for some people, you know, it's it's this loss that allows you to identify with the lessons of the past. There's always talk about sacrifice, but you don't understand sacrifice until you've lost the thing that you thought you couldn't live without. And mm -hmm. now all of a sudden, you realize not only can I live without it, but I'm better because of it. And it's so hard to come to that because you, it's so hard to square that, to square that is like, how can I be better that I lost this thing that I love more than anything in the world? How can I possibly be better? But that, that's probably a pretty good meditation for people to think about. Can you be better if you lost the thing that was most important to you? Like a lot of good can come from thinking about that. Maybe- yep maybe four grams of mushrooms and that thought for a while can fundamentally change the way you see the world. Yeah. This is where, yeah, like you said, psychedelics have had traditionally ancestrally had, you know, a huge role in reminding people of this because yeah. I don't know, maybe everyone has to go through something like this in their lives. I don't know. There might be some blessed people that never do, but um, I suppose you can anticipate it through some yeah. psychedelic practices and, my, especially the one that does it for me the most is is ayahuasca with the uh the temascal sweat lodge mm, i've um, never so, well it's it was like the, it's brutal it can be brutal the one i've done it with the the shaman i went with he uh he's re he's like relentless with this with the sweat lodge and he actually makes us drink it and then go in the sweat lodge and stay in there for like three hours whoa and yeah it's intense it's intense and you feel like you're going to suffocate. You don't have water. There's just, you're always aware of death. Yeah. And you're not really going to die, but it just, it feels so intense and it's so hot in there. Like it's hotter than any sauna I've ever been in. And uh, you get to a point, like I remember a few times where I just literally was on the dirt in sort of child's pose and like complete surrender. I was like, I can't even sit. Like yeah. I'm, I'm that defeated. And the only way we could get through it sometimes was through singing these powerful songs. And there are times where like you're on the you're on the brink of like, well, I can't take this anymore. I'm gonna die or whatever. And then there's something in there, some little yeah. power or will that's like, no. Right. And then you start, <laughs> yeah. you know, you start getting pumped up and you start yep. with the drums and like that brings you back, you know. And it's almost like you 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 look at death and you're like, no. <laughs> and yeah, it's really powerful. That is awesome, man. Have you have you done that a couple times or? Uh, ayahuasca I've done probably maybe nine or ten times. Wow. With, uh, not every time with the sweat lodge, right? Uh, but probably like maybe four, like that, three or four. The first one, I was like, I didn't even make it. Like uh, they they went through four rounds, and I didn't know that. And after one round was like fifteen twenty minutes, 
and uh, I thought it was over. Like I was literally, I can't do it. And they're like, nope, there's three more. I was like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> I had to leave. Like I had to, I had to leave. I couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's really intense, but worth it. And it, it does feel like a rebirth. You come, you because you go in naked first of all. So you go in there and then you go through this kind of death episode and then you're literally crawling because you've got no strength. You've just been dehydrated. You, yeah. The effects are still on. You're like crawling out of this thing that looks like the womb of the Mother Earth. Wow. Out to the other side. And then you kind of like, you know, you're cold and, you know, naked in a ball kind of just like you've just been born again. It's, yeah, it's, it's amazing. That's as, that's pretty close to, to, I mean, it's, that's that's as close as you can come to being reborn. It's just a full yep. shutdown and and reboot, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of power in there. I think that, you know, when you when you come to those crossroads, you see th- you see the world differently. I mean, you you maybe you and it makes sense if you start looking back at indigenous ways. Like there's a there is a process for becoming a man there is a process for becoming there's a rite of passage you know if you think about just think about that language a rite of passage like when you go to the birth canal that's a rite of passage when Mm -hmm. you climb out of the sweat lodge that's a rite of passage and maybe that's something that in the western tradition you know we have failed to do like our rite of passage is like graduating hey congratulations you you graduated college but Was that a near death experience? Did you become a man or did you become a woman? Or, you know, it's not the same type of rite of passage as the rites of passage that have been in folklore and in humanity since the beginning of time. Yeah, you go in your book was called Terra, Terra Sacred, right? Terror Before the Sacred. Terror yeah, that's exactly sacred. what it's about. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you, you talk about that quite a bit about the, uh, the, absence of ritual especially for men i think yes because men seem to need it more because women have the natural one they get their period and it's like very intense for them yeah and they their relationship with their child is just it's so much more than at least in my opinion like my wife's relationship with our daughter and our son is i'm jealous of sometimes because it's so pure and you know, I once heard this quote that said the difference between a man and a woman in the relationship with their child is when your child's sick and the wife can't stop thinking about it, but the husband just gets up and goes to work and does his day. Like yeah. I can compartmentalize that, but my wife can't. She's like, we need to fix this. Here's she's got a she's got 102. I know she's sweating a little bit. Like she knows every detail and it's it makes sense. Like she carried her in her body for like nine months, you know, so. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there can be more rituals for men, and there should be. And somehow that's been looked down upon for the last maybe thirty years or so. Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to see it in in Bali, where I'm living now, where there's more and more of these men's circles. I don't know mm-hmm. if they have those where you are. Not. Why? I'm sure they do, but I am. I'm not a member of any. Yeah, me neither. I've been to one before, and I see the value in it, but it seems to be more and more that. There are some things like that and groups organizing. They're more just talking sessions, though. It's not the same as we're still missing that that initiation right into manhood. And I haven't seen too many great substitutes for that in, in our society, unfortunately. And I think it's leading to a lot of lost men. Um, Yeah. 
especially when you hit our age, like I'm going to be 40 this year where, um, I don't know, I was thinking of this a lot lately because my father died a while ago. So he died when I was 26 and you're talking about the relationship between mother and father. And mm -hmm. I would, for me at least, or I think maybe in general you can say this, but I think I was tied to my mom a lot more as a younger, right? And sure. you see people on their deathbed or dying in war, they reach out, they call for their moms, not their dads. Yeah. But there is a certain age where I feel like the dad plays more of a role. And I feel like we don't feel it till we get older. Yeah. And unless we've had that initiation or the, the, the wise elders, men in our community, we're sort of missing something. There's a void. And yeah. I haven't found I haven't found anything to really address that other than Freemasonry, which comes close. Freemasonry yeah. comes close to that. Yeah, you you had mentioned that you had you had found out that your father had participated as a Mason, and my then grandfather, you, your grandfather, and, and yeah. all of a sudden it's like you find this group of men that can be mentors to you that maybe knew some obviously that shared pa shared a similar passion to your grandfather. I think that there's. Yeah. Something to be said about that. Yeah. And I, I like, if we're talking about Freemasonry, I got to put this like disclaimer yeah, out there. Right. Because there's a lot of stuff I've seen about Freemasons taking over the world and their <laughs> the hidden cabinet be behind the World Economic Forum and all this stuff. My official statement is I don't know. Okay. I <laughs> right. don't know or not if that's right. true or not. It could be at the highest levels of the organization, they get together and they plot things. Uh, you can't put that past any group of people. <laughs> But all I've seen from my limited, I've only been a member for a few years and not recently because of COVID. I haven't really been to meetings, but all I've seen is a group of seek. Uh, it's like gentlemen school. It's like uh, guys that generally seem to be good people that are trying to be better. That's what I've gotten from it. And they use ritual to teach certain things and there's right. a camaraderie and there's sort of that bonding thing that happens and it's an imperfect substitute for probably what we used to go through in, in more primitive days. But um, I think it serves its purpose pretty well. I'm happy to be a member. Yeah. So I, I just wish there were more things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, I remember as a kid watching the Flintstones and they were all part of the loyal order of the water Buffalo. And it seems like men, our grandfather's age, it was more, it was prevalent that every town had a lodge of some kind, whether it was the Moose Lodge or the Elks Lodge, or, you know, yeah. there's all these lodges for guys to get together and be like, hey, I'm having this problem in my relationship. Hey, I'm having this problem with my kid. Hey, I'm having this. And the same way that maybe a, a young man that was indigenous to America would go to the elders, we don't have that for young men now. Like you might have teachers. But you don't have this area where you can, where it's easy to go and pick a mentor. I, I was right. lucky when I, I, I found some really great older guys in my life that I just attached myself to and I got to learn from. And it, it, I learned a lot. You know, some of it was pretty painful, but there's something to be said about an older guy that can tell you, hey, you arrogant little fuck, you, you don't know what you're doing. Why, why would you say that? You know, and like young men need that. Like, mm -hmm. and maybe your dad can't do that for you because you don't have a good relationship. But if there's somebody you admire that you respect and they can grab you by the collar and be like, you are such a dummy. What is wrong with you? Or it doesn't have to be negative. It could be like, hey, I noticed you're doing this. How about this over here? But 
you know, I, it, it, let me just take one more shot at this here. My, one of my mentors told me a story about a group of elephants. And he said that he had read about this two young elephants that went to the zoo and the zoo had had them for like five years. And these young elephants were two boys and they were going around the whole park, just crushing everything and tearing down fences and mowing down trees and the zoo people were like, dude, what are we going to do with these elephants, man? We have to put them down. We're going to ship them away. And so they, they made all these calls, and they called this elephant park in, in Africa somewhere. And the guy said, no, no, look, they're, they're, just young, they're just young kids, man. They're young boys. You need to bring in an older elephant. That guy will show them what's up. So they brought in this older elephant, and sure enough, within a matter of like months, they started watching the older elephant that like wasn't tearing stuff down, that wasn't breaking things. And when one of the younger elephants would go and break this fence, the older elephant would walk over there and smack him. Like, what are you doing, dummy? That's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's this idea of guidance. It's this idea of looking at someone who's been through situations. And that's, that's the story behind mythology. That's the story behind the Homeric verses. That's the Iliad, the Odyssey, the hero's journey. It's Joseph Campbell. It's, it's, it's there. And it's, it's almost like these things are smacking us in the face. Like, hey, you guys forgot, man got a lead and that and that yeah. i gotta be honest kevin like in your book i think that there's so much wisdom there like i i gave a copy of your book to my nephew because i thought there was so much wisdom in there so thank oh, you thank for you. that i i, I think and, and when i see your journey i see you traveling and making these decisions about okay i'm going to travel here and then i'm going to go to business school or here's what i have here's here's a guy that's running his way up through the corporate world and find some problems there. And it goes out of his way to face the threshold guardian. You know, like it's so, it's so Joseph Campbellish to me, man. Thanks for doing it. <laughs> I appreciate those words. Yeah. Yeah. I got, yeah. um, we need more of, uh, of those kinds of things. Um, I don't know. I like, I think within every, or maybe not every man, but within a lot of men, we love our women. We love the, the homes we create. Yeah. But there's, there's some, thing missing and it's maybe because we're somewhat feel like we're caged wolves or something but there's something with like we need that man the, the just being around men just being men being men without yeah. filter or without being told that we're disgusting or whatever um yeah, yeah so I, I definitely think that we can do way better there yeah. yeah what would that how would that look like i mean would that look like Maybe maybe it might look like joining a men's club or something like that. But yeah. what what advice would you give to maybe yourself ten years ago or fifteen years ago to kind of fill this void? Well, yeah, I've done it with with Freemasonry to a certain extent. But anybody who's listening that's thinking uh, they need something like that, if you can't find a men's circle, just try starting one. And it can be just yeah. something amongst your friends. You know, it doesn't have to be any um, any real formal thing, but you should make it somehow ritualistic or ceremonial a little bit. So a lot of the, the circles I've been to, they do, you know, they, they do it at night. Um, they usually put like kind of soft lighting and they might even have, I forget what the word is for, but you know that piece of wood smoke uh, that they, they light the wood and then they kind of put it around you. Like you know an incense about? or something, or like a. It's a, there's a word for it. It's slipping my okay. mind, but it's it's literally a piece of specific piece of wood 
that they light on fire and then it just makes it just makes smoke and it has a very distinct smell and they, they use it a lot in ayahuasca ceremonies and things like that it's but, not frankincense so, no no i just um i don't remember the word for it it'll come to you but, later yeah but they the, so they'll do that and they'll make a little ritual out of it doesn't have to be anything elaborate you don't have to bless people with crystals and stuff like that but just to sort of set when we talk about psychedelics set set yeah. uh, set and yep. setting right so try to create the setting for uh, a calm uh a, a calm atmosphere that allows people to share whatever they got going on and if that's you if you're hosting it then you kick it off with whatever you want to talk about and see what happens you know it could be something good yeah it, i think it, it goes back full circle to the boom and the bust and the and the moving in and out of the tides this i think that you and i are similar in our nomadic nature like we've picked up and we've left everything to go make our own way because that's what we were taught to do you guys make your own way. But now you're seeing the regression of the tide. And it's like, okay, us men that were nomads, we've went out, we've discovered. Now it's time for guys like us to come back and share with people, hey, here's what we learned. Mm -hmm. And may maybe it's guys like us that should be starting the men's group. Maybe we are the closest things to our grandfathers. So it's up to us to show the younger guys. Maybe we're the older elephants. You know, Maybe it's our turn. Yeah. Yeah, and anybody thinking or watching this thinking, well, I don't have anything to share. Well, I guarantee you have something to share. Yeah. Like you've been through something that other people haven't uh, or interpreted your your experience in a certain way. And I think there's a real need for this. I think loneliness is just uh, people are lonelier than ever. And um, men are bad at making connections. I mean, women are amazing at it. When I yeah. see my what my girlfriend does, she makes best friends with someone in 10 minutes is exchanging numbers and they already have plans to meet and stuff. Guys don't do that. I don't know if it's yeah. like you don't want to be thought of as gay or something, or I don't know what it is, but guys just don't really yep. do it. Yep. But they want it. They want it. They're like almost all guys love to be invited to things, but they don't want to be the inviting. Yeah. So maybe, you know, excuse me, I got a cough. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, why can't it be uh, whoever's listening? Just be you. You can be that person to reach out. You can yeah. surprise who, who shows up. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about influence and and relationships and and learning and yeah, it's sometimes I think about it from like a, a a war standpoint because that's what guys do. If you look at the way like even colonialism or you look at the way battles are fought, like you send out the sometimes you would send out like recon to go and check everything out and then they would come back. And it seems like if you look at our world as a giant war, all our societies like as a giant species of war. Like we've gone out across the globe and we've sent people out there to fight and conquer. And now we're all coming back to talk about, okay, here's what I learned. Here's what we're doing. And it just seems like a good strategy to do. Kevin, Can I ask you a question. Yeah, man. You what do you got? Well, yeah. Just like, what uh, have you, I mean, you read a lot about this kind of stuff, probably more than me in terms of um, ritual and things like that. Have you read yeah. anything interesting about past rituals like that men would do for other men? In certain cultures, yeah. that stuck out. Maybe. Yeah, um, there's a really good book called Black Elk Speaks, and it's about this medicine man. And he talks his. I feel silly because I don't remember exactly what tribe he was from. However, he speaks a lot about the indigenous experience and what it was like for him. And in a weird sort of way, he was someone who he was like the last medicine man from his tribe and he was reaching he was taught by an older like his grandfather not his father but his grandfather and so 
he was the guy that was given the keys to the rituals and the ideas. And the book is so beautiful and so inspiring, but also so sad because he's saying, I got no one to give the keys to. That's why oh, I'm writing this book. That's why I'm telling these white, that's why I'm telling everybody, here's the keys. Which one of you will hold them? Here's the keys. Which one of you will have the courage to stand up and do this? Because here is what happens when no one has the keys. Society around us falls. It doesn't matter that I'm an Indian. It doesn't matter what tribe I'm from. What matters is that we forgot the way to treat ourselves. And so when you ask me if I had read about men's groups, this was the ultimate man's group. It was this guy who came out and is telling the world, like, the time is now. Here's the keys. Here's me, you know, a, an Indian guy writing a book. Like I, we have oral traditions, but I'm trying desperately to reach out to whoever I can and using these methods that you guys use. So that's the one that comes to mind when I think about ritual. And he spoke about a similar sweat lodge. And he talked about the transformation of ideas. And the way he spoke about ideas was through a similar type of trip that he had about, you know, seeing the eagles, seeing the animals, seeing his, his connection to nature, which I think is a big part of a man's group is our connection to nature. In the world we live in today, a man is defined by how much money he makes. A man is defined by his consumption patterns, but nothing could be further from the truth. I know tons of men that make tons of money that can't even run a mile. What kind of a man is that? I'm, right. I'm not trying to be rude or disrespectful, but if you if your body is at a point where it is breaking down, but you have tons of money, you should rethink what it means to be a man. You should rethink about some of these decisions that you've made because it's probably not too late. How can you throw a ball with your child if you have millions of dollars, but your arm doesn't work? You know, you've spent all your money be, and I think you write about this in your book. You spend all your time working for an entity, a corporate person that doesn't care about you. You put all your time and your money and your the best times of your life when you're a young man and you can be with your wife and you can be with your kid outside at a picnic or hiking or surfing or snorkeling. You're at a corporate boardroom talking about how do we give the illusion of productivity? <laughs> That's not a man's group, damn it. That's not a woman's group. You should be out there doing something, like whatever it is, having your hands dirty in the garden. But yeah, that, when I, when I, thanks for asking that question because I, I love to rethink of that guy's story. I'll send you the book. It's everybody should read it. send it to me, an audio book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. read it. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's something that will fundamentally change you if you let it. But I think there's tons of stories out there. Have you read some other rituals and things about men's groups? There's an interesting book called Iron John, a book about men. Um, however, I wish it would be more specific. Um, so that's um, that's kind of why I asked the question. Like, I hear a lot about these mm -hmm. these rituals and what men used to do for other men. And in this book, it talks about there's one thing that they do, and it involves pain. It's like the mm -hmm. wound. And um, yeah, it's I, I won't do it justice, but check out that book. And they talk about the wound. So part of the these initiatory rites involved, I think, the administering of a small wound to the boys. 
Mm. And I can't remember what it's supposed to be symbolic of, but I think it served as a reminder. And that was, that was a, a key in, in all, in a lot of them. Yeah. Shared so yeah, pain, shared yeah, check that one out. Iron John. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think in the book, I think it's in, um, Black Elk Speaks, where he talks about the ceremony that the boys would go through. And it it seems almost barbaric. Like, they would cut them and hang them so they were almost dead, you know? Yeah. And and there's other stories about them dancing in the sun until they get to the point of dehydration and they fall. Like, that's the point. Like, you have to go till you almost die. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's it's that that death, like, the simulated death that men go through. And then you understand another man. Only... When you have seen another man in his worst moment, and you have been through a moment like that, can you identify with that person? And like, mm. like the same thing we were talking about. How when I when I watched when I went through what I went through, that's how I can see other people going through it. That's yeah. the same thing when you've been through terrible things. Now you have this ability to see other people going through it. Like that's what makes you. A leader that, that that's what can make you a leader that's what can make you a man is that the shared tragedy is like yeah you went through it so guess what now you can go help other people through it and it, you can save them in a way you can be the guy that when 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 someone's down on the ground and they're crying because they've lost everything you can be the hand that walks over to them and pulls them up like i think that, that slaps is and be like hey you're fine <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey Hey, congratulations. Not, not literally, but in, in you know, tough yeah, love like, kind of way. That's yeah. one of the things that 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 my mentors have done for me is like I'm crying like a baby sometimes, and they're like, hey, congratulations, man, you did it. Yeah. And like, what? No, you don't understand. I've lost. Like, yeah. No, no, I do understand. And congratulations. Now you're one of us. Yeah. And it's like, oh, oh, I this is a graduation ceremony. And that that comes back to the wound that. You know, a lot of warriors, or even if you look at football players, they'll like have a brand on them. Like you think it's probably something dumb, but dude, these people went through a ritual. They went through a sacrifice where they seared this thing into their skin, and all of them have it, and all mm -hmm. of them have a story about how they got it. It's it, you know, maybe it's a story about your first love or the first. I, I tell my nephews, you're not a man until you've had your heart broken. Let me hear your story. Well, right. who's the first girl that broke your heart? How did it happen? And if you, I hope everybody has that story because that is a rite of passage. Like, hey, congratulations, you made it through. You didn't kill yourself. You didn't kill the other person. You know, you made it. Congratulations. It hurt, didn't it? Well, now it. Now, I got good news and bad news for you. The good news is that no one's ever going to break your heart like that again. And the bad news is no one's ever going to break your heart like that again. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. Hey, I hope it was beautiful because – it ain't going to happen like that again. I hope all those times where you thought that this person was the most beautiful thing in the world, hope you embrace that because now you're scarred. Nothing can grow there. You grow Something will grow there, but it won't be the same, man. It was pure, mm -hmm. wasn't it? It's was beautiful. Yeah. Think about that person, man, and find in your heart a spot for them and always remember them. Remember the good parts and remember the bad parts, but that's the ceremony. Like every day is a ceremony. Life is a ceremony. And if you can see those rituals, you can get through your day with passion. You can get through it and be like, Ah, oh, this is can't believe this goddamn thing's happening to me. And then you'd be like, oh, you know what? I'm pretty lucky. Look at this thing. You can you can see it. And I was telling this guy yesterday on my route that I do. You know, sometimes life will throw you. Life, nothing hits harder than life. But sometimes 
when you're having the worst day, something beautiful happens. And for me, the other day, there's this little kid on my route. He's probably four, a little Japanese kid. And he, I've known him since he was two. And he didn't even speak any English or when he was two. You know, and it, I remember last year, all he could say was, yep, yep. And I would, he, this kid runs out of, when I, when I put my truck, he runs out of his house and can be looking for me, waving. And I'll come over, I start talking to him. Hey, man, did you have a good day today? Yep. You want to see the back of my truck? Yep. You going to eat lunch today? Yep. Hey, who's your, do you like race cars or trucks? Yep. Like, that's all he can say. But it's so damn cute. And like, I see him look at me and like, he's so enamored by the truck and his parents will come out and like, but it just, it just hit me like, God, man, I'm so focused on how silly or how things I don't like, but here's this new life in this world. And he's so excited that he just wants to interact with life. And it, it makes me look at my life and be the thankful for I am. And when I see, you know, something that, because my kid died, whenever I see a little kid, especially little boys, man, like I miss my son, man. And yeah. I made a promise to myself, like every time I see a kid, that's my son. When that kid runs out, that's my son. When I see a mom holding their baby, that's my son too. I'm going to try to do something for him. I always try to bring a little toy or a magic trick or something, like show him. And a little part of me gets to imagine for a minute, hey, that's me and my son. That's me and my kid. And so this kid gets to live his life. And I get a little something out of there. But that's a ritual because of what happened to me. You know, I'm, I, I had this moment. And now I get to share that moment and recreate that moment for other kids and that kid will never know that I think he's my son, but I do. And a part of him is, and you know, I get to be his dad. And I think that we can all have those experiences in life. If you're willing to go through the pain and you're willing to understand life as a ritual. And I, I, I wish that I could share this with other men that are going to go through this. And, and I guess that's kind of what I'm doing now. So yeah, thank you for letting me do in, it man. In one way for sure. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. Hey, man, I, I appreciate you. Thanks for letting me share it, man. I guess a lot of it's just about bearing your chest, you know? It's so hard. Strike me down, if you will, but... Yeah, I'm right here. I remember, yeah. remember, remember that scene in Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan's like, you call this a storm? He's yeah. Like, <laughs> I always think about that. Like, for when sure. things get bad, you just be like, that's, this, that's nothing. Laugh at death, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I sometimes, you know, you see people out, out and about people that you think might be crazy or homeless people is talking to themselves and maybe they're laughing at the creator. Like, man, this is nothing. I'll be homeless forever. What is nothing. It's you know, <laughs> nice to imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably not that way, but maybe, maybe I think you can learn from everybody and whether it's you manifesting your ideas onto someone else, whether it's you seeing yourself in that other person, I think there's so much out there that that you can learn from if you're just willing to look at every situation like a learning environment. You know, if you're vulnerable, like you said, if you put your chest out there, you're probably gonna get smacked. You're probably gonna hurt, but you're probably you're gonna definitely learn. get smacked. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna. I've been punched in the For face sure. a lot. I've been beat up a lot. You know, but I think that that's that's life. You know, you get how else? How else do you know how far you can push it until you've been punched in the face enough times? And I think that's what the, from what we were talking about before, that's what the wound is, right? You give all the men, they go through this experience in these rituals where they have a near-death experience where some of them like actually will poison boys to the brink of death, basically. Wow. And they give yeah. them a wound. But so, so much of these wounds we're just talking about, they're not physical wounds. Right. So 
if I see you've got a missing leg, okay, I, I, I see you had a wound, but if you, your emotional thing you went through, I'm, I can't see it on you. So right. I think that's, I put that wound so that it's visible to other men and be like, oh yeah, yeah, you've been there, you know? Yeah, this it's. I think that this is a lot like the mystery schools. If you look back into the Pythagoreans, or you know, e even the the Masons is sort of a mystery school, and they have a death ritual, by the way. The do Masons they really? Do. Yeah. What's that look like? Um, it's basically it's like a death awareness thing, mm. basically of of your own death, and uh, they're supported by brothers as you yeah. kind of like deal with it it's yeah it's good powerful of course it's powerful like that, that that's these are the kind of things that and and it's probably why it's probably the reason they want you to seek them out because only when you seek them out do they know you're ready for the experience right like you can't just yeah. go and pick someone off the streets and be like hey i'm gonna take you in this in this ritual but you know yeah they, you can't you can't teach anybody that anything they don't want to learn right yeah it's like when the the saying goes right when the student is ready the teacher will appear and then you've got to seek it out that that says that it all simple. right there yeah. it really is it really is and you know i i think that we're all that teacher and you don't know who you're talking to like you, you know you don't understand the person across from you may be a high ranking official in some secret society you don't even know of, but they could be teaching you, you know, it's weird how like the teacher shows up, the teacher shows up and that means the student shows up. And that means that the teacher sees himself in the student and the student sees himself in the teacher. It's this transfer of knowledge. That's what ritual is. That's the, understanding behind it is like i'm going to show you these beautiful horrible things <laughs> that makes sense you know yeah and you're gonna learn them congratulations whether you want to or not i've chosen you or you've decided that you've on some level you've decided that you want these trials it's the same thing I, I think it's the same thing with with the uh the zen master right like the anybody who goes to a psychologist ought to have their head examined <laughs> you know what i mean that's a great call on. Yeah. but yeah that's that's the thing I, i've i've heard some interesting zen cohen's and some interesting stories from people that wanted to go learn from a zen master who was a horrible zen master not that because they wanted that experience and like the guy's gonna give it to you you know he's gonna throw stuff at you he's gonna punch you in the face like that's what you want like you want that you went there <laughs> <laughs> What they hit him with a stick or something? Yeah, like they do all kinds of like that's 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 Zen. Like mm. you have it in you right now. You're already there, but you if you want to go to the ashram and sweep up for thirty years, be my guest. You can do that. I heard a good story. I'll share it with you. It's that uh, there was this Zen master, and he saw this promising young student that was he would be at the temple every day, and he would go and he would pray for five or six hours. And one day the Zen master comes down and he sees this young student who's, who's praying and he's, and he is focusing and he is meditating. And the Zen master walks over to him and he said, what, what are you doing? And he's like, Oh master, I'm meditating so that I can reach enlightenment. And the Zen master sits down next to him and he, 
sees this brick and he picks up this brick and he spits on it and he starts rubbing it with his hand. And he's just rubbing it, 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 rubbing it. And the student's like, master, what, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm going to rub this brick until it turns into a diamond. And the student says, master, doesn't matter how long you rub that brick, it'll never turn into a diamond. And he goes, oh, so you do understand. And he walks away. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's, there's, it's beautiful, but it's tragic. But that's the same thing that like they're showing you life. And some people need to have a, a master there to show them that. And the master's trying to snap you out of this idea that you need him. Like, yeah, you already have it. But if you want me, if you need me to hit you with this stick, I will. I want you to get it. And sometimes, like, people people mistake that stick for something else, you know, and they, they just stay there. And the more people stay there, the the angrier the Zen master gets because he's not getting through to you. And keeps smack him harder. Get out of yeah, here. You can't thing, do it. There's this thing people have about seeking authority elsewhere. Right? Yes. Yes. And uh, where we are our own authority at the end of the day. But people like the illusion of being under somebody who knows what's going on. Yeah. And some people never, whether through some people, don't graduate past that. I think probably the majority. A lot. A lot of people. Yeah. It's hard. It's difficult to know that it's you. It's difficult to know all the good things that happen to you or you. It's difficult to know that all the bad things that happen to you while simultaneously not your fault at all. Like, how do you square that? Like, that's hard, man. It's, there's no, there's you. Yeah. Right. And you reside in everybody else. Excuse me. It's all you. Every person you see, every event, it's you. You know, and it, all these books, like I'm looking at all these books in my library. I'm like, how did I write all these? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's crazy. Get here? <laughs> yeah. Who wrote yeah. these? You know, and I, it's beautiful in some ways. And I, I uh, I'm thankful, man. I, I would talk to you, Kevin, and I, for everybody listening, the book is called Young and Miserable, Young, Successful and Miserable. And yeah. it's a fascinating story. We've only begun to touch on the first couple chapters, but Kevin and I are going to be talking for the next few weeks about life, about the book, about how to make yourself better and rituals. And I'm sure we'll be touching on things that have touched our lives and, and those around us that we care and we love and, and stuff. So that's what we got for today. I, I I would go another hour, man. I got to, but I got to, I got to go. Yeah, me too. And I'm also I'm like, sure. yeah, it's a low energy from the whole COVID thing. I'm sort of uh, running out of steam today. Yeah, man. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, yeah. I really enjoyed this, Kevin. I, I enjoy talking to you and I enjoyed the book and I'm looking forward to uh, our further talks. And I hope that people will take away from this, the feeling I have right now. I hope that people, I hope there were some things that we said that can help other people. Where can yeah. people find you? And what is it that you hope people take away from our conversation today? Um, you can find me at uh, kevinholt.me. My book is there for, I think only audio and PDF is there. If you want a physical copy, it's on Amazon, but I have no, no way to print them myself. I've also got a breathing course on that website. It's like the fundamentals of, of breathwork, pranayama. And the reason I put that on there is because I feel like anybody who's trying to change anything, 
you got to start with your breath because so many things come from from your breathing and breathing correctly. And if you really want to surrender, like we were talking about, then that's sort of like step one is you got to go uh, fix your breathing. We can check that out there. And uh, yeah, basically anybody watching, I hope you hope you enjoyed it. I hope uh, something that we said resonates with you and uh, makes your day just 10% better. You know, that's all yeah. I want. <laughs> yeah, me too. I can't, I'm going to, I got to, I'm going to take that course. I can't wait to, to download it and, and check it out. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Okay. So, uh, yeah. I'll reach out separately. Okay. Well, hang on one second here. I'm going to, I'll end this broadcast and then I'll talk to you a little briefly and then, and then I'll let you go. Everybody. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for, for listening to Kevin and I, we're totally blessed that you're here listening to us and reach out to both of us. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks that's what we guys. got for today. Aloha. <clears throat> Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.